Good morning. Good to see you guys. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 5? Now, if you're new with us, we welcome you. And just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary. And uh, we come to John 5. We've already started the chapter. But uh, let's back up to verse 16 and kind of get a running start at today's study. For this reason, now that would relate back to the first 15 verses of chapter 5, where Jesus healed a man who had been lame for 38 years. On the Sabbath, he healed him and then told him to carry his bed with him and go his way. And so because of this, the Jews, the Jewish leadership, persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now when we first started John's Gospel, we said that the reason that John wrote his gospel, as he declared from his own mouth, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, was to prove that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, and the Son of God. Hear, hear it in John's own words. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, eternal life, in his name. The Jewish people believed that Messiah, when he came, was going to be a man like Moses, a deliverer who would free them from Roman oppression and establish a kingdom. This would be a glorious kingdom where Messiah would reign over the world from Jerusalem. It would be an age of peace and prosperity for all mankind, especially for the Jewish people who would reign with him as prime ministers over the whole earth. And yet, when Jesus presented himself to the nation as Messiah, its leaders and most of the Jewish people rejected him. Why? Why didn't they accept Jesus as their Messiah? Well, for two main reasons, both of which come out of our text this morning. They rejected him as the Messiah because, first of all, he violated the Sabbath. And number two, that he claimed God was his father, thus making himself divine and equal with God. For the last couple of weeks, we have studied the Sabbath and why it was so beloved and even revered by the Jewish people. And why the leaders were so furious with Jesus for his seeming disregard for the Sabbath. You see, they had come to associate the keeping of the Sabbath with one of the signs of Messiah when he finally arrived. They believed that the Messiah, when he would come, would be known by, among other things, that he would lead the nation in perfectly keeping the Sabbath. One historian observed, and I quote, the Sabbath had become a pervading theme in Jewish life. So significant was the Sabbath that a major section of the Mishnah was devoted, devoted to Sabbath rules. Sabbath obedience became, in fact, an eschatological issue. Eschatology is the study of end times or last things. And Jewish eschatology means the events that would lead up to coming uh, of the Messiah. So in their minds, they had come to associate uh, eschatologically 
the Sabbath with the Messiah. The author goes on, because it was thought at least minimally that the coming of Messiah was linked to the perfect keeping of one Sabbath. The actions of Jesus were thus regarded by Sabbath-oriented Jews as being diametrically opposed to the expectations of the rabbis who probably would have categorized Jesus as an antinomian libertarian. Antinomian means against the law of Moses. Uh, he did not seem to be concerned for the precious rules of the rabbis, end quote. No, he wasn't. He could care less about their man-made rules. What he was concerned about was the word of God, obviously, right? So first of all, guys, the Jewish leadership rejected Jesus as their Messiah because in their minds, listen, he went out of his way and seemed to violate the Sabbath. Something, of course, they believe Messiah, true Messiah, would never do. However, as we've already pointed out, Jesus never violated or broke Sabbath law as God intended it. Only their faulty man-made interpretations of what constituted Sabbath law. But secondly, the reason the Jewish leadership primarily rejected Jesus as their Messiah was because he claimed to be God in human form. Now, in all fairness to these men, as the religious leaders of the day, they were members of the Sanhedrin, which was the, rulers, which was the religious ruling council. And as members of the Sanhedrin, it was their responsibility to guard the purity of the Jewish faith, of Judaism, which meant they routinely investigated any new preachers and teachers who appeared in the land, testing their teachings against the law of Moses, lest the false prophet come along, perverting the faith and misleading many people. You remember they did this with John the Baptist, who showed up uh, in the wilderness one day preaching his message of repentance in preparation for the coming of Messiah. And what was the Jewish leadership's response in Jerusalem? Well, uh, in response to John's preaching, the Jewish leadership sent a delegation of leaders out to the wilderness to question John. You can read, we studied this in John chapter 1, starting with verse 19. You can read that again on your own. And now they started to do the same thing with the ministry of Jesus, scrutinizing everything he said and did as to whether or not he was a false prophet. And again, one of the main sticking points... One of the red flags, if you will, that turned them off to Jesus as the true Messiah was that he claimed to be God's son, thus making himself equal to God. And as we said when we first started John's gospel, understanding who Jesus is is not only foundational to the Christian faith, listen to me, it is the difference between eternal life in heaven and eternal destruction in hell. No small issue, to say the least. And because it's so pivotal to the gospel, which is the good news that alone can save us, the devil has sought to confuse and deceive people through the centuries as to the true nature and personhood of Jesus Christ, listen, starting with these very Jewish leaders who believed he was anything but the Son of God. One historian observed, and I quote, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day, motivated by their own bitter jealousy, accused him of a lot of things, okay, but accused him, among other things, of being a Samaritan, that was no compliment, being a Samaritan who was demon-possessed, insane. I've got the references here if you want to come up and find out where these uh, accusations come from. They're right here. Uh, but they accused him of being a Samaritan, demon-possessed, insane, uh, one of illegitimate birth. We'll study that in John 8. 
Although they could not deny Jesus' astonishing power, they discounted it as being of satanic origin. Their successors similarly reviled Jesus as a transgressor in Israel who practiced magic, scorned the words of the wise, and led people astray, end quote. So, you know, they had already come to the conclusion that he was of the devil, flat out. So this became one of the hot-button issues of Jesus' earthly ministry. Was he the a son of a man, like Moses, or was he the son of God? Now, many believed he was at very least a great prophet, possibly even the Messiah, but far less believed that he was the son of God and divine. But this, as I said, was no small issue. It was no small issue. Christology is one of the major issues of the Bible. You can be wrong on your eschatology, on your angelology. You can't be wrong on your Christology, who Christ is, okay? And so this became a very important issue. So much so that when Jesus took his guys up to Caesarea Philippi to get out of the heat of the, you know, his enemies wanted to kill him, he, you know, it's a little too hot in Jerusalem. Let's go up to Caesarea Philippi, way up in the north country, uh, you know, where, uh, uh, where the Jordan River begins at the base of Mount Hermon. And, uh, but while he was up there with these guys, uh, well, you can turn to Matthew, I'm sorry, turn to Matthew 16. And let's look at it together. Because he asked his disciples this very question. In Matthew 16, starting with verse 13, they're up in Caesarea Philippi. And then he asked his disciples saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? In our vernacular, hey guys, what's the word on the street? What are people saying about me? So they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead, okay. Some say you're Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Guys, saving faith is always personal. You're not going to get into heaven because your mom believed in Christ, or your dad, or your brother, or Uncle Harry who was a pastor. Saving faith is always personal. We don't get saved in groups. We only get saved as individuals. And each man or woman has to come to terms in their own heart and mind. Just who Jesus Christ is. So guys, what do you say about the Christ? What do you say about the Christ? Um, who do you, who, but who do you say that, who do you say that I am? In verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So we know from this passage and others that Jesus' own disciples had come to believe that he was the Son of God. But what about the religious leadership of Israel, like the Pharisees? What did they believe about him? Well, for that, turn to Matthew 22. And we're going to hang out in this section just for a little bit. Because it's pivotal to this introductory message that we're looking at today. And I'll tell you introductory to what in a minute. But in Matthew 22, 
Starting at verse 41, it says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord... How is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Now hang on to that. We'll come to a, back to it in a second. But let me just say this. This whole passage in Matthew hinges on the question Jesus posed to the Pharisees, who is the Christ? Now let me just stop and, and say this. Do you realize that all four of the world's main religions are looking for a Christ to come to the earth who will, listen, end all wars, all injustice, end all hunger, heal all disease, and basically bring the earth into a paradise state. Those religions are, first of all, the Hindus who, and their Western counterparts, New Agers. They are looking for the coming of Maitreya Buddha, who will be the next reincarnation of the Christ spirit on the earth. They believe that Jesus was the reincarnation of the Christ spirit for this present age, the Piscean age, whereas Maitreya Buddha will be the latest reincarnation of the Christ spirit for the new age that is coming, the age of Aquarius. They believe that when he comes, he will bring the world into a complete state of enlightenment and mankind will reach godhood, except for the monotheists Christians, Jews, and Muslims who refuse to evolve. Okay, we're monotheists. And those left on the earth when, when Maitreya Buddha comes uh, who refuse to evolve, who refuse to get with the program, that they are part of the God consciousness, that you know they're on their way to Godhood, right? Those that refuse to get with the program must be destroyed like cancer cells in a body when that body is being given chemo or radiation. Those cancer cells are destroying the health of the human body and have to be eliminated. You should read, if you want to, not very uplifting at all, but you should read some of the writings of these New Agers, like Barbara Marks Hubbard and others, who claim that the earth is a living organism and we're all part of the God consciousness. We're all working our way towards Godhood, except for the monotheists, who have lower vibratory brain waves, they're kind of retarded. And you know what? We, you know, we have to do the world a favor by eliminating them. But it's okay, we're doing them a favor. Uh, because they'll be reincarnated back on the earth, more enlightened. They'll get with the program, and then they'll get with us eventually. Interesting justification when the Antichrist comes. And those folks believe that Antichrist is Maitreya Buddha, which I think is extremely possible that they're going to see killing Christians, Jews, and probably Muslims as doing them a favor is a good thing. How in the world could they justify killing all these millions and millions of people? They're doing us a favor. I say us, I mean, you know, we're going to be gone, I believe, in the rapture. But there'll be plenty of Jews, Christians, and Muslims on earth after we're gone. And uh, quite a horrific scenario that these folks are painting in their writings about what they're going to do to these folks. But anyways... So the Hindus, and second group is the Muslims, I'm thinking of Shiite Muslims, 
Uh, those will be, you know, Iranians are Shiite Muslims, okay, uh, the, the Saudi Arabia Sunni Muslims, but the Shiite Muslims make up a pretty good population, are waiting for the coming of their Messiah, or Mahdi, whom they believe will be the 12th Imam. According to the Shiites, the 12th Imam disappeared as a child in the year 941 AD. When he returns, they believe he will reign on earth for seven years before bringing about a final judgment and the end of the world. Now, it's interesting, in some of their holy writings, they actually say that the Mahdi will have a sidekick or a lieutenant or an enforcer who will come with him. You know who he is? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. The Mahdi will be the Messiah. He will be the one who reigns. But Jesus Christ is going to be his lieutenant, his enforcer, who will wind up killing all his enemies. And who are enemies of the Shiite Muslims? Christians and Jews primarily. So they teach that Jesus, when he comes with the Mahdi, will wipe out Jews and Christians all over the world uh, with the armies of Islam before this perfect state can be uh, impl uh, impl implicated, but instituted. Okay? Well, the Jews also are looking for the Jewish Messiah promised by God in their holy scriptures called the Tanakh our Old Testament. When he comes, they believe he will conquer Israel's enemies and establish a kingdom upon the earth, at which time all war will cease, disease will be cured, hunger and poverty will come to an end, and the world will enter into a glorious utopian period known as the kingdom age. Now, when we get to around verse, I don't know, 45 or 6, where it talks, Jesus said, you know, I have come in my Father's name, and me you did not receive. Another will come in his own name. Him you will receive. I'm going to tell you a little story that happened to me at a little amusement park in the area where the family was with my granddaughter and all, and uh, ran into a, um, an Orthodox observant Jew, and we had a nice conversation. And I'm going to tell you what he said about what they believe is going to happen when Messiah comes. All right? Hang on to that. Well, the fourth group, of course, is Christians. And um, Christians are looking for the second coming of Jesus Christ, who we believe is the true Messiah and Savior of mankind. We believe, like the Jewish people, that when he comes, he will establish a kingdom upon the earth, a thousand-year kingdom known as the Millennial Kingdom. It will be a time of peace, prosperity, where uh, he will not allow any kind of crime and justice the uh, Bible says that every person will be able to sit under their, under their own fig tree and not be afraid. You won't have to lock your doors. You'll take your swords and spears and beat them into plowshares and pruning hooks, and mankind will not study or do war anymore. That's a glorious thing we're looking for. So that's the millennial kingdom. So the question that Jesus asked, who is the Christ? And of course, here's what he's really asking. Who is the true one and only Christ? Is a very important question. Especially when you remember that Jesus himself went on to warn us in Matthew 24 that the closer we came to the end, of his, his return, the end, many false Christs would come on the scene in the last days, having even supernatural power to deceive. This, he said, would lead up to the coming of the ultimate deceiver and false Christ, a man we know as the Antichrist. This, will man, this man will have supernatural power, charisma, and wisdom. 
Most of the people of the world will embrace him and thrust him, listen, thrust him into power. When he comes, he's not going to take power by military force. He won't become a military dictator until the midpoint of the seven years. Initially, though, because the world is going to know him, uh, I believe he's alive today, but the world is going to know him, and he's going to have such brilliance, such charisma, along with supernatural power, that the world will believe he's the Messiah that's been promised. Remember, all four of the main religions on the face of the earth that encompass most of the population believe that a Messiah is coming. And you can see a lot of Christians deceived who call themselves Christians, who go to church, as somebody has said, sadly, the Sunday after the rapture, a lot of churches in America will be completely full, missing nobody. I hope this is completely empty but the world is going to believe this guy is our messiah and they're going to take him and thrust him into power he's not going to fight for it they're going to give it to him he's going to have all this power and they're going to support him wholeheartedly as he establishes a global one world government guys the people of this world i think most of you already know this the people of this world are ripe to receive a global leader They've already been conditioned mentally to think globally. Our kids are being conditioned in school to think globally. This is not going to come as a shock to them. In fact, a lot of young people are pushing for globalism. But anyways, people of this world are ripe to receive a global leader who will unite the world and bring about a utopia of peace and prosperity for all mankind. However, Paul the Apostle warned and prophesied in 1 Thessalonians 5, when the people of this world finally think, ah, utopia is finally here, you know. Finally, our Messiah is on the throne, you know. And he has brought peace and prosperity to the earth. Because the Antichrist will do that initially when he first comes into power. However, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 3, when they, the people of this world, say peace and safety. Oh, utopia has arrived. Then sudden destruction, judgment from God, will come upon them suddenly as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Read Revelation 6 through 19. But understand, guys, that when Jesus asked this question, what do you think about the Christ? He then added, whose son is he? Now, this is the supreme question when it comes to understanding and therefore believing in the one and only true Christ. Will he be the son of a man or the son of God? Now, why is that question so important? Because in John chapter 8, you don't have to turn there. Starting with verse 23, Jesus said to these very same Pharisees. That's, that was quite a brouhaha in John 8. We will study that. Uh, in a few years. But we'll, we'll get to it eventually, okay? Uh, no. A couple years. Uh, so, 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 but here's what he, they were in this confrontation, pretty heated. And at one point in John 8, 23, he said to them, you are from beneath, I am from, from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore, listen very carefully, therefore I said to you, that you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am. The he is in italics. It was added by the translators for clarity. Take it out. 
you will die in your sins if you don't believe that I am. Right here, Jesus is claiming to be the voice from the burning bush. I shall to send shivers up your spine. He's claiming to be the voice from the burning bush. God said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses said, I don't even know your name. Who do I tell them is, you know, who should I tell Pharaoh is sending me? You tell him I am is sending you. Name of God. Jesus is saying, this is not a non-essential doctrine that you understand who I am. If you don't believe that I am God Almighty, you are going to die in your sins and spend eternity in hell. It's what we call an essential doctrine for salvation. Now, back in Matthew 22, verse 42, Jesus said to the Pharisees, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And what do they say to him? The son of David. The son of David. Look, the response of the Pharisees to Jesus' question was the standard belief held by the Jewish people as to whom the Messiah would be when he finally came to the earth. As I said earlier, they believed he was going to be a deliverer like Moses. You say, where did they get that from? God told them that. God told them through Moses. Our Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, God said to Moses, but to a promise to the whole nation of Israel, I will raise up for them a prophet like you. God speaking to Moses. From among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So the Jewish people believed that Messiah would be a great prophet, a deliverer like Moses. And since Moses was a man and not divine, the Jewish people believed Messiah will also be a man. They did back then, they still do today. Messiah will also be a man and not divine. And then many years later, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David that Messiah would be, would be his descendant who would sit on the throne of his father David forever. And again, since David was a man and Messiah would be one of his descendants, the Jews believe that Messiah will also be a man like his father David and not the Son of God. So you can see why a lot of them rejected Christ as a false prophet because he was teaching something they had always been taught was not true. He was saying, I'm God, I'm your Messiah, but I'm the Son of God. And they were thinking, well, you can't be. Because our teachers, our rabbis have always taught us he was going to be a deliverer like Moses, a man like David, and so on. But listen to me. As our country has become more and more secular, less and less Christian, and more and more biblically illiterate, well, if you were to take to the street and canvas people, because let me just say this. This happens to be the standard response of many people today. When asked who Jesus Christ is, or was, if they don't believe he's God and eternal, but if you were to take to the street and canvas people, you know, as to who they believe Jesus Christ was, for many, uh, today the conversation would go something like this. You walk up to somebody, can I talk to you? I ask you a few questions. Okay, sure, you know. Uh, who is Jesus Christ? And they would say something along these lines. Well, I believe that he was a great religious teacher, sent here by God to teach us spiritual truth. Okay. Do you believe he is God in human form? Oh, no, not really. I, in fact, I think we're all gods. We're all evolving to godhood. Okay. 
Uh, well, do you believe that he is the Savior of the world who came into the world to save us from sin? Now, most people, I'm convinced, would say, uh, well, no, because I, I don't think we're sinners. Uh, I, I don't believe that there's such a thing as sin. Uh, ultimate right and wrong. I mean, whatever is right for you is right for you. Whatever is right for me is right for me. It's all relative. Well, do you believe he's the only way to heaven? Most people would say today, no, I believe there are many roads that lead to heaven. Jesus is one of those roads, but there's many that lead to heaven. Look, many people believe that Jesus Christ was a good man, even a great man, but just a man, not the Son of God. You know, whenever we talk about those who believe Jesus was a great man, but not God, <laughs> the words of C.S. Lewis in his famous book, Mere Christianity, pop into my mind. Here's what Lewis said, and I'm quoting him. He said, you know, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, you know, that's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher and not God. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to, end quote. You know, how anybody can say that Jesus was a great religious teacher and then pretty much reject everything he taught about himself and salvation is ridiculous. And that's what Lewis is pointing out. Which brings us back to the confrontation Jesus had with the religious leaders of his day over this very issue. Again, was he simply the son of a man or was he, uh, was and is he the son of God? So back in Matthew 22, verse 42, once again, Jesus said to these Pharisees, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, well, he's going to be the son of David. And then Jesus in verse 43 says, well, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David calls him Messiah, Lord, how is he his son? Now, look, Jesus didn't argue with these men, did he? He simply appeals to the scriptures. He quotes our Psalm 110 verse 1. Not that it's Psalm 110, verse 1 in their Bible or their scriptures, but it is in ours. And this is what he was quoting to them. And look, Psalm 110, verse 1 was a messianic psalm. And in Jesus' day, every Orthodox scholar, listen, every one of them interpreted this to refer to the Messiah. Because only the Messiah could sit at the right hand of Yahweh, Father God. Jesus believed in the inspiration and accuracy of the whole of the Old Testament scriptures. For he said that David spoke these words, what? What did he say? In the Spirit, which is another way of saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's what he was saying to these men. And look, 
Jesus knew the Pharisees would never dare question the accuracy and authority of the Word of God. Listen, for all their faults, they were conservative in their theology like we are. They were not liberals, all right? They believed that the Word of God, their Bible, was, uh, was the Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus knew that. And he couldn't talk this way to the Sadducees. They were the liberals. And they didn't believe that the whole Bible was inspired and so on. They, they were quirky that way. But he knew the Pharisees uh, believed uh, in the authority and accuracy of the Scriptures, which meant he now had them caught on the horns of a dilemma. If Messiah is David's son, Jesus asked, then how could Messiah also be David's Lord? You see, they lived in a strong patriarchal society. And as such, the son always called the father Lord. The father never called the son Lord. Because the father was always greater in authority than his children. That's why the children always refer to their father, a term of respect, Lord. And so the question had them completely stumped. There was no answer they could come up with that would have solved this apparent, underline the word apparent, contradiction in Scripture. There are no contradictions in Scripture. Only our faulty understanding of what God is saying. But he is talking to these very conservative, theologically conservative leaders. And he's pointing out an what seems to him to be an obvious contradiction. Messiah is going to be David's son. You said it, right? Son of David. But David calls him Lord. If he's David's son, how can David call, David's the father, how could David call his son Lord? And we'd have to agree that that problem was unsolvable. Listen, if you believe that Jesus was only a man, however, the problem is easily solved, if you understand and believe that Jesus is both the son of David, a man, but also the son of God, second person of the Trinity. And therefore, as God, of course, he was of greater authority than David, which meant that David rightly referred to him, Messiah, as Lord. Guys, the fact that Jesus was fully God and fully man is what the theologians have called the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is the mysterious joining of the divine and human in, one person of, in the one person of Jesus Christ. One author says, and I quote, Jesus has two complete natures, one fully human, the other fully divine. What the, and they're not 50-50, by the way. He's not 50% human, 50% God. He's 100% God, 100% man. So he has... Two complete natures, one fully human, one fully divine. What the doctrine of the hypostatic uh, union teaches is that these two natures are united in one person, in the God-man, Jesus Christ, uh, in the God-man. Jesus is not two persons, he is one person. The uh, hypostatic union is the joining, mysterious though it might be, of the divine and the human in one person, in the one person of Jesus Christ, end quote. Look, why couldn't Messiah just be a man? like Moses or David. Why did he have to be the God-man? Well, we've talked about this. Now, I'm not going to launch into a big thing. But you have to understand, if Jesus would have had an earthly father, then the sin of Adam would have been passed from his father unto him. He would have been born with original sin. And sinners can't die for sinners. That's why Jesus could not have an earthly father. 
Now, the Bible says that he had an earthly mother. That's where he received his humanity. And God the Father provided the seed to the Holy Spirit who, was, who uh, placed into Jesus' womb the, the seed of God. And that's why when Jesus was eventually born, he was sinless, fully God, fully man, lived a perfectly sinless life, which allowed him to go to the cross and die for our sins. The innocent dying for the guilty. Very important. Very important. You, you, you wouldn't believe how many churches today teach Jesus was not God. That he had an earthly father. Now, these are not, these are not evangelical churches. But they're out there. They call themselves Christian churches. Jesus is the God-man. Now, and yet down through the centuries, Satan has deceived millions who regard Jesus as one of many religious leaders, mere men, that have come down the pike of human history, a great teacher who was a wonderful example of virtue and servanthood for all of us to follow. As one author and historian recounts, throughout the centuries, scholars and skeptics have given many different answers to the query, who is Jesus Christ? His life is the most influential ever lived, and its impact continues to escalate. Still, Jesus' true identity is still hotly debated by modern, by modern historians and theologians. Countless opinions have appeared as unbelievers have attempted to explain away the truth about him. The theological skeptics and liberals of the 18th and 19th centuries were intent on denying Jesus' divinity. They viewed him as the quintessential, strictly human moral teacher in whom the spark of divinity inherent in all people burned most brightly. So we, we all have the spark of divinity in us. We're all on the road to becoming God. He just had it burn a little brighter than most of us. That's what the liberal theologians believe. In their minds, Jesus' sacrificial life provided mankind with a, with a model that all should follow, but not with a means by which men ought, might be saved. Thus he was an example for faith, not the object of faith. Other conceptions of Jesus range from the crusading socio-political revolutionary to liberation theology to the cynical Jewish sage of the Jesus Seminar to the countercultural hero of the rock musicals Godspill and Jesus Christ Superstar. But all such fanciful and blasphemous viewpoints are far removed from the God-man revealed in Holy Scripture. They say more about the obstinate, unbelief, and perverted imaginations of the people who created these views uh, than about Jesus' true identity. Ironically, in all the debate over him, Jesus' own self-testimony is seldom considered reasonably. Did he, as historic Christianity has always maintained, claim to be God incarnate in human flesh, or, as skeptics argue, did his followers later invent these claims and attribute them to him? All this unbelieving pseudo-scholarship ignores the biblical account of his life and ministry, which leaves no legitimate doubt about who Jesus declared himself to be and who he was, end quote. So that's the problem. Too many people listen to theologians about who Jesus was, and don't actually go to the scriptures to find out who Jesus Christ said he was and is. It doesn't matter what some theologian. I, I'm sorry. I, I, you know, a lot of these guys got these letters after their names. PhD, which actually stands for phenomenally dumb. <laughs> Seriously. When I hear these supposed educated, brilliant, quote unquote, men and women 
pontificate about Jesus Christ, I, I think any kid in my Sunday school class has a better grasp on who Jesus is than these bozos. Let's go to what... It doesn't matter what they think of Jesus. It doesn't even matter what I think of Jesus. It only matters what Jesus thinks of himself. That then leads us to the opening text, verse 17, of a series we've entitled, Jesus Declares His Divinity. Jesus Declares His Divinity. Now, let me end this morning by asking you, because that's a series we're going to start next week. Very important. Uh, as we're going to see, foundational. Not for, just for salvation, but for sanctification. That we as Christians, every day becoming more like Him. Jesus declares his divinity. Let me just end this morning by asking you the question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And I think I can speak for most of you. You would agree he is the son of the living God, God incarnate. But for those who are listening online eventually or on the radio, or maybe even a few here, what do you think about the Christ? doesn't matter what we think about the Christ. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And again, remember that saving faith is personal faith. Again, Jesus up in the area of Caesarea Philippi. Guys, who do men say that I am? Oh, some say John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. But who do you say that? Who do you say that I am? See, it's always personal, isn't it? It's Jesus says, look, it doesn't matter what everybody else thinks about me. What do you think about me? Remember in John 11, when Lazarus died. And Jesus finally came, and Martha met him, and fell at his feet, and said, Where were you, Lord? If you had been or my brother would not have died. And Jesus said to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. Uh, and he said, uh, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die. Let me say that. He shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And what did he say after that? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Now, most churchgoers would immediately respond by saying, well, I believe in Jesus. Always have. Well, that's great. But the Bible says Satan and his demons believe everything about Jesus Christ that we evangelicals believe. You realize that? In fact, if Satan applied for membership, <laughs> he doesn't apply for membership, he just crashes. In fact, he's in the pulpit, so, you know, he's got the whole church. But anyways... But, but that's not a good church, okay? If Satan applied for membership into a Christian church like ours, we'll say. What do we do? Well, we don't have a formal membership, but if we did, and we do ask this when we people uh, volunteer to do ministries, we always ask them a series of questions, what they believe. We want to establish the orthodoxy. Uh, ortho are they orthodox in their faith? In other words, do they hold to the, uh, the traditional uh, bedrock doctrines of the Christian faith, historic church? And so... In churches that have membership, of course, memberships, uh, the candidate would sit down with the elder board and they would ask the person a series of questions to determine their, if they're orthodox or not in their faith. And, and the questions would go something like this. Uh, and imagine a church uh, grilling now Satan who wants to be a member, all right? Uh, Satan, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that he was virgin born? Do you believe he died in the cross? Satan, do you believe he rose the third day from the dead? Do you believe he's coming again to judge the world in righteousness and establish a kingdom? Are you saying that you believe the Bible is the word of God? Because he would say, yes, he would answer affirmatively all those, right? Guys, 
Satan believes everything we believe about Christ. You know why? Because he was there to see it. He was there to see Jesus born of a virgin. He was the one who helped get him nailed to the cross. He was there at the tomb and the stone rolled away. The angel moved it and Jesus stepped in the tomb alive. He knows he's coming again to judge the living and the dead and to establish a kingdom. And he knows the Bible is in fact God's word. He believes everything we believe about Jesus Christ. So why don't we let him into our church? Why don't we let him join? He must be a believer, right? No, he's got head knowledge. He's not a Christian. Because to be a Christian, you have to have head knowledge. But it leads you to making Jesus Christ your Lord and your Savior. Bowing the knee to his authority and lordship over your life. Satan will never do that. He's a rebel. It doesn't matter, folks, that people go to church and hear the Bible. Well, yeah, it does. But that's not going to get them into heaven. A lot of people have head knowledge. They've, gone, they've grown up in church. They grew up in Awanas. I mean, they were even involved in Bible clubs as kids. They memorized verses and they went to Bible camp and maybe won a ribbon for being able to, you know, recite the most verses and so on. I've known people like this. But they've never, ever bowed the knee to Jesus' lordship. They have never said, Lord Jesus, I believe who you are. I believe what you did for me. And now I receive you into my heart as my Lord, my master. Take control. From this moment on, my life belongs to you. And you can lead it and do with it as you choose. You're my Lord now. That's how information becomes salvation. And so it's very, but it all starts with knowing and believing who Jesus Christ is. So let's listen to his words over the next few weeks. Let's hear what he has to say about himself. And jettison any preconceived ideas about him. And let's just learn from the master's voice himself who he is and um, what the father has called him to do and a very important series may god bless it and use it father we thank you for your word we thank you lord for the truths in your word if we will but study your word well lord we know we will walk in light and in truth and never stumble in darkness so lord we thank you and we ask that you would now bless this series our lord that it would lead us in the right path, that we may know fully who you are, Lord Jesus, even though I know we, most of us do, but uh, not assuming anything. Give us grace to study the words that you spoke about yourself. And in the process, may we come away by your grace with a greater understanding, a deeper knowledge of you and who you are and what role you have in our lives as your people. Lord, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.